Welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly guide to the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time. My name is Andrew. And I'm Darren. And you're very welcome to a very special Halloween episode of a the 250. A spooky episode. A very spooky episode for your delectation. I hope you will enjoy and be... <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. It's like, so this week, you, so this week, yeah. we will be discussing. We've, we, I guess, last year we had a big argument about what, what constituted a horror movie, or what furthermore constituted a Halloween horror movie. Yes, this is the point where Darren is the ridiculously liberal guy. He was like, "Yeah, we can throw Seven in there. We can throw Science of Lambs in there. Yeah, there's room for everything." Forrest Gump. <laughs> well, I mean, Forrest Gump is a scary experience for anybody. Yeah. The Help, The Imitation Game. These yeah. are all terrifying movies. It's horrifying that they made it onto the list in the first place. Whereas Andrew, I believe, had a very puritanical approach yeah. to, to what... I said, the only movies that are in it are The Shining uh, is, is, I would say, a horror movie. And I would say it's, I would say it's a kind of a Halloween movie as well. Okay, um, let's let's distinguish yeah. between the two, right? Because this 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 intrigues me, right? My my bar is pretty simple. Right. Is it scary? Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it make you jump? Is it creepy? If it passes most of those questions, for me, it's a horror film that's worth discussing in the context of Halloween. For you, though, you have first of all, is it a horror film? Second of all, is it a Halloween film? What's the difference between those two? Oh, this is difficult because because it's it's it seems to me that the there are certain things. I mean, a lot of horror movies kind of cross genres. Yeah. Like science I, fiction. It's, it's, yeah. it's almost a parasitical genre in that you, you have to start somewhere familiar and then go somewhere weird. Yeah. So, for example, like with The Shining, you start as a family drama and then you become like a guy with an axe. With Halloween, it's got that same sort of thing. With this, you've got science fiction. Well, it's well, like, yeah. I mean, with The Shining, I don't think it's ever really a family drama. <laughs> it, it it's It's consistently kind of... Um, in terms of tone yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah from the very beginning and and i think that it, uh, that's what like kubrick didn't like about it um, <laughs> that it was supposed to be kind of like a journey oh no America. that was that was what stephen king didn't like about oh sorry 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 sorry, sorry. Stephen what, King's what big, are i saying yeah stephen sorry, King's big that's, problem with it that's was what that i meant there was, I was no mixing up, i was missing mixing up my case you're all tours yes yeah but yeah, King's problem with it was that, yeah, basically um, there was no suspense about whether Jack Nicholson was going to start murdering his family. It was only a countdown to when, uh, which upset you, King greatly. Understand you just see uh, Jack Nicholson above the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, I know how this story ends. But anyway, so with regards to a Halloween movie, right? So the thing I think... I would say know, like things like uh, ghosts and... Uh, oh, so it has to be supernatural. Witches and <laughs> maybe like... I, I would I would put a few kind of like it, it's not just that it's scary yeah that it would have to be kind of supernatural and and so they I'd I'd be reluctant to put aliens <laughs> into that however well hold on let's let's go back here to your it has to be supernatural like the movie Halloween right which is about a serial killer who murders kids on Halloween would not meet your Halloween movie criteria by this measure. Well, it's tangential because because it, it's happening around Halloween and it's like the way um, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. 
even though it, it doesn't have anything to do with the birth of Jesus or, or Jolly Saint Nick. Um, we'll talk about this a bit more probably when we get to the Christmas episode. But it's based around Christmas. And it's at, a story of a man time. trying to bring his family together. Uh, it's fundamentally a story about family reunification that I think a lot of people recognise about Christmas. Yeah, at it's, its core, it's a Christmas it's like movie. Jingle All the Way. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. But I think my, my view of a horror movie is does it make you uncomfortable? Does it make your skin crawl? Does it make you jump? And if it does that, well, then like I'm... the Emoji movie made me <laughs> uncomfortable, <laughs> made my skin crawl. <laughs> <laughs> made you jump? Did it make you jump at any point? No, no, it oh. didn't. Yeah, like you, like I think you need a a a, a few jump scares. This one, like it, it was, it was definitely a a horror movie uh, cross with a sci-fi in the kind of similar to. To, to aliens, I guess, but yeah, it, but it was but it was so. I think um, I think aliens was more firmly a a sci-fi um, than this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... aliens had that thing that you talk about. When we talk about Cameron's obsession with detail and explanation and like making everything perfectly clear yeah, and sensible. Yeah. Whereas the thing, and one of the things that I like about the thing, which we won't get too specific about at the moment, is that it's wonderfully vague. Um, Carpenter is, is a director he's, and to be fair to Carpenter he's done a lot of work that isn't necessarily horror so he's done stuff like obviously Big Trouble in Little China which would be more of a fantasy film Starman with Jeff Bridges which is sort of a sci-fi romance but he's done these sort of films and they've been sort of like he's not nat- he's not always a horror director but he's a very good horror very, director he's very associated with horror he is with the genre yeah. obviously with Halloween uh, with Ghosts of Mars which is one of those horror movies that is scary for its quality and for its actual plot. Um, this movie in particular is the start of a trilogy of horror films they did, including Prince of Darkness with Donald Pleasance, which is very mm. good and massively underrated, and In the Mouth of Madness with Sam Neill, which is also underrated and sadly underseen. And one of the things that I like about the thing is that it doesn't over-explain itself. It's full of all these little ellipses and mysteries, and nothing is ever entirely clear, whether to the characters or to the audience, I think. There's just enough clear that you understand the rules of how the monster works, but yeah. it's... It's never overwhelmed. It never overexplains itself. It's much like our introductions. Yes. You have a sense of what the podcast is you're listening to, even if it's never exactly explained yeah, yeah. what's going on. Maybe the podcast never makes sense. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it makes just enough sense to be, to be coherent. But it is, uh, the thing is notable. It was released in 1982, directed by John Carpenter, um, an adaptation of the novel Who Goes There by John W. Or the short story Who Goes There by John W. Campbell which had previously been adapted uh, into the movie The Thing from Outer Space in 1951, I believe, uh, which was produced by um, by Hawks, who's, who's a big sort of influence um, on Carpenter. Um, and Carpenter's actually talked about, like, if he could remake another film, he'd love to make, I think it's Only Angels Have Wings, because he's, he's usually influenced by, by Hawks in terms of as a filmmaker. And basically, th- this movie is an adaptation of that, which is, is interesting because you get that sort of weird translation thing that you do when you move stories out of their original context from the 50s into the 70s and 80s it happened with say invasion of the body snatchers as well where you take a story that in the 50s was quite explicitly say an anti-communist parable right and then you move it out of that context into like the the pre-reagan years in the case of uh, the you know the invasion of the body snatchers or the reagan era as happens here and what happens is you get a story that is quite similar and in many ways, it's actually truer. Carpenter's uh, adaptation is truer to the source story. But you end up with a story that means something completely different, which is fascinating. Um, and the thing is just, the thing is, I'm going to be entirely, I was going to lay it all out here. The thing is one of my favorite horror movies ever made. It's one of my favorite John Carpenter films ever made. 
I think that there are a lot of films in, I think he's a fantastic director. I think a lot of his work is massively underrated. I think like Wes Craven as well. He's one of those, act, one of those directors who, because he's worked in genre a lot, his contributions are somewhat overlooked, uh, particularly when it's because he's been prolific. Yeah. Um, but the thing is just, it's a sublime piece of work for me. It is one of my favorite horror films. It's probably one of my favorite films. It'll probably be in my top 50 uh, films ever made. And part of that is just how ominous and how heavy and how how wonderfully crafted the atmosphere and the tone is and how it gives you enough to follow along and to understand without giving you so much that it becomes familiar and leaving all these nooks and crannies very intentionally i think for the audience to try and figure out and piece together the story or the narrative or who knew what what's going on who is what what's happening without spelling it out without being explicit which again was one of the great things about horror i think is over explaining horror makes it less scary and i think that leaving enough room for doubt and for interpretation and for the audience to fill in the blanks themselves is in some ways scarier or as scary as, yeah. as any of the wonderful stuff that happens in this it's film. a very simple kind of premise yeah 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 like it, it, it's it, it has a lot in common with kind of like the detective stories like yeah. but of, it's yeah so who who done that sort of thing yeah. it's locked room mystery it's like it's it is in many ways, and one of the things that I like about this, we'll it's, probably talk it's about It's like a, a game of Pluto. It is. Well, <laughs> this is the thing, is that there's yeah. a board game coming out. I mentioned this to, to Andrew earlier. There's a board game coming out this Halloween from Mondo, which is basically Cluedo. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's basically Cluedo, um, except with the thing. That's amazing. Um, it is. It's fantastic. I'm actually, I'm half tempted to pick one up, even though I've never played. I, I'd be very, very curious if I could get people around maybe we could record and do a bonus episode i feel like that's 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 a perfect idea for 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 a bonus episode and i'm not i'm not a a a huge a huge board game person to the extent that like i'm not part of the kind of uh the culture of 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 board games but i like board games yeah and you like the thing yeah and therefore you put the two together and it's just exactly just yesterday i bought um a cold war board game uh, uh, called Twilight Struggle that I'm looking forward to to, to rather the playing yeah yeah but it is it's one of those things and I mean in context of this is a very early 80s movie and that it, it's very much it's interesting because it is a cold a literal cold war parable in that it's about something found in the ice and thawed out and stuff but I think you can also pick up on and we talked about this when we talked about aliens it has this sort of Reagan-esque subtext there's a lot going on in the thing under the surface I'd be interested actually to 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 kind of hear some of your theory. I guess we won't go too much into it. Yeah, just yet, in, just but, in uh, case there's somebody listening who hasn't actually this, watched the thing in yet. This is my first time watching the thing, and and I had recommended it as this, a, yeah. a a as like um, a potential Halloween movie, having having never seen it. Yeah, I remember you got very. This is what surprised me. When we <laughs> sat down to watch it because you were like, I've never seen this before, and I was like, Wait, wait. The discussions that we had, <laughs> where you were like so adamant that this was like one of only two Halloween and horror movies on the IMDb 250. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to whittle it down to just one. <laughs> uh, the, the thing got in on sympathy. The thing got in on a sympathy. Yeah, vote. yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't exclude it because because I I didn't know enough um, <laughs> about it. About it to. to yeah. I, I like the fact that you did that to preserve to give me a choice i appreciate that that it was like you came back with two <laughs> films so it wasn't just you dictating that we're doing the shining last year yeah um, i'm kind of glad that it worked out i'm kind of glad that we watched the thing and it wasn't a musical yeah um although yes i i'd seen the thing years previously because i'm again big carpenter fan and it was also big carpenters fan um the two overlap more than you would think 
Are you a big carpentry fan? No. Okay. But I am a Catholic, so I guess that sort of counts in some way, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so with that in mind then, um, Andrew, is The Thing one of the top 250 movies ever made? Yes. I'd have it there. I think I think it's maybe disappointing that there aren't more movies of this kind in, in the... In the in, list. Yeah, yeah. And, and like... Horror isn't um, isn't kind of my genre, but I I like I like when things are done well, and and you could say you could say that my my I guess my favorite movie it, at least it seems like my favorite movie Robocop. I like um, that we're getting the Robocop is, reference, yeah. the obligatory two fifty Robocop reference out of exactly. the way before the spoiler Because this is this is this is this is a movie with with uh, with Rob Bottom. Yeah. So yeah, and doing wonderful practical effects. Yeah. Um, on the the eponymous, I don't think it's spoiling the movie to say that there are horrific practical effects and when i say horrific i mean horrific in the best way yeah. they're sort of visceral and skin crawling and yeah. uh, like there's traditionally when we do the this podcast occasionally we will eat food while watching a movie andrew who had not seen the movie before i turned... eaten today and arrived and i was like oh god i'm hungry and, and like there's the first uh, one of the first times where i've where i've, where I've arrived and not being offered food yeah. <laughs> i was like okay i don't know <laughs> Um, uh, rude. <laughs> I'll just help myself, which is which is um, more rude. But um, um, yeah, I was kind of eating away, and Darren is kind of sitting there, not eating away <laughs> conspicuously. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You always worry when you're watching a movie, and Darren doesn't have food in his hand. <laughs> Darren generally has food in his hand while recording this podcast. Yeah, but it is. It, the special effects are astounding, and the technical craft involved is is just amazing. And it is like the thing is one of those movies that underscores. I don't think it's unfair to say that horror is a malign genre, and in many cases, it's it's easy to see why it's malign because in many uh, cases, you, yeah, you invest a bit of money, you release crap, and it makes massive amounts of money when teenagers go and see it, and yeah. as a result, it doesn't have the same critical um, cast of drama or you know. Yeah, and I I think recently uh, yourself and Grace, the get out get out, which I also saw. I wasn't on the podcast, but it, what what kind of disappointed me about that was that it kind of used like some of the trappings of the genre. Yeah, without being having scary. yeah, without being scary, like it, it, without having the kind of um, uh, visceral thrill almost. Yeah, yeah, where you you sh- should have that kind of very heightened emotional reaction to it or, or that kind of that thing in in your in your reptilian brain yeah you going, know? this is not right yeah, I, yeah. this is like a primal threat to me exactly well i mean that i think that's fair like i'm i'm a huge fan of get out um as i think came across the podcast and i yeah. still am and i think that one of the fairer criticisms that's been made of it and one of the more reasonable criticisms that made of it is that it is not a really scary horror film um, yeah and i mean i think that is a criticism because it's a subjective criticism like it's not funny enough comedy but it is something that I think is very applicable when talking about a horror movie. Yeah. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to look at a horror movie and just say it's not scary. And and have that be the sum of your criticism of it. And I think you're right when you say the thing or when you suggest the thing is the thing is a scary horror movie. The thing is a really visceral, intense but it's also really paranoid as well. It's got that wonderful blend of I think when, when Stephen King wrote about writing in uh, Dance Macabre he talked about how you have basically like three layers of horror. So you have the, the initial layer of revulsion and disgust. You have sort of this level of sort of unease and you have this more fundamental sort of terror. 
And the idea is that each one of those is deeper within and more fundamental. And so, like, for example, repulsion, revulsion is something that happens instantly when you see something disgusting on screen and you sort of gag. I think I've heard Scott Adams talk about five or six levels of, of, of humor. Yeah, and it's over, a similar sort of Yeah, comment. yeah. And I think that, that one of the things about the thing is that it works on, I think, each of those three levels, no matter how you approach it. I think on a very visceral level, the the work that we talked about, the special effects work, is just astoundingly good. And mm. it is sickening. And it's sickening in the best way that like horror movie oh, yeah. stuff can be sickening, in that like you don't I want to be we'll anything... have a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. oh yeah, we are. Um, and then underneath that, though, there's this wonderful sense of, of unease and paranoia and sort of unsettlingness yeah. that sort of simmers beneath the surface. Like, there are extended periods in the film where nothing visceral happens. There are no jump scares. But it's still just as unsettling and just as tense. I want to I want to bring up something because because this is this a a, a two fifty podcast. So it's the top two hundred fifty movies of all time. It's very subjective, but uh, but you would imagine there should be a certain amount of agreement around it. And something that we ask, uh, some something I asked is like, do you think this should be on a movie? Did you in- sorry? Did you think this should be on the list? Uh, did you enjoy it? Uh, would you put it higher or lower? Would you recommend it to people? Yeah. I have to be very qualified in whether I'd recommend <laughs> it to people because this this is this is a um, a very intense movie. A, yeah, it's it's uh, like it's traumatizing. It's it it, it 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 like if 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 you're if you're squeamish or if you're feeling kind of um, wheezy a little bit. Yeah, yeah. or if you've just eaten. emotionally vulnerable in some way, and, <laughs> and then then and I'm I'm wondering like do do these kind of is is there an onus on movies in the two fifty to be kind of like um, crowd pleasers? Well, yeah, or... well, because it is it's a populist list. You have to get yeah. twenty five thousand votes. And they all have to be high. I mean, like you see a lot of stuff like polarizing movies very rarely get on the list. So, for example, Mother never had any shot getting the list. And we'll, well, actually, but yeah, let's let's talk about this now because it's not a spoiler. When the thing was released, its immediate visceral critical reception was one of rejection it wasn't just like qualified rejection it wasn't like look carpenters you know he's it's it's grand it's okay you know it's it's not anything memorable this was like this is an affront to the artistry of making movies this is disgusting repulsive yeah this is like this is not what cinema should be doing and and this sort of stuck with the film yeah and and it 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 kind of does remind me like watching it of of like some like um, what do you call them? The like trauma movies, uh, like a, the, the a, torture a, porn, the gore and sort of stuff. No, like like, like um, you ever seen uh, Poultry Geist? Poultry Geist? No, I have not <laughs> no. watched Poultry Geist. Um, there, there's like a whole genre of movies, and generally they're 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 disgusting, and they generally have like a, a kind of a tongue in cheek sort oh, of quality. Uh, are we talking about like brain dead? And they're, like they're Peter in Jackson's really bad or... taste. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's sort of, like the stuff he did before Lord of the Rings. I think so. Yeah, I because haven't, the I haven't bad seen Brain Dead, but for from what I've from what I've kind of read about Brain Dead, it sounds like it's in that kind of wheelhouse. Yeah. But they, it's it's this similar sort of uh, how can you upset the audience sort of quality to it. Yeah, yeah, in 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 parts without without uh, without without being uh, like in that. It, it was reminiscent, I guess, of, of, of some <laughs> yeah. of the kind of disgust that you might get. It was perhaps probably better made. Like, I mean, yeah. one of the things... Of... Oh, no, no, not just perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> to be absolutely clear. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things about the thing is that, and we talked about this in the podcast before, because I, I find this fascinating when we talk about like movies and critical rehabilitation and whether in the age of like writing on the internet where everything's sort of written in ink and cast in stone immediately, whether it's possible to have this sort of culture of like immediately being skeptical of a film and then gradually warming to it over time. Yeah. But like if you look at, say, the, the IMDb 250, in terms of the thing, the thing's entry onto the list is relatively recent. The list has been around since 1996. It popped on at number 250 for about a day in 1997, and then it was gone for 10 years. It only re-entered the list around about 2006. You thought it was dead. Yeah, <laughs> but then it gradually thawed out yeah. and sort of crept back in. Yeah. But it is, it's one of the things, and you can actually trace its rehabilitation into the late 90s. And we'll probably, like, when we're going to talk about the film, a lot of a lot of my reading of the film, a lot of what I, what I think about the film, a lot of my, my sort of insights or whatever, they're going to owe a lot to the work of Anne Bilson, who is a a British film critic who's done a lot of great work with The Guardian. But what she did in the late 90s was she was approached by the British Film Institute to write a a book on a masterpiece of film. So they, you know, they have these these collections where critics will pick a film and they'll write, say, 200 pages on it. And, and then, you know, right. and they'll make an argument for it being a classic or whatever. And they gave her a list of films and she was just, she wasn't particularly impressed. So what she wrote back is she said, look, I want to do the thing. And to their credit, they let her do the, the thing. And, think. <laughs> I know this is a very much who's, a, who's on first is going to be this podcast but yeah there's this sense that the thing only came to be accepted as a horror masterpiece in the late 90s and into the into the new millennium and it's sort of like Blade Runner which we've talked about on this podcast before it kind of had the luxury of having the space and the time because it was a complete box office failure on release I think John Carpenter has talked about how all of his box office failures really hurt him as, a, as an artist. And understandably, I think most directors who've had that sort of rejection will feel that way. But he's talked about how the thing particularly hurt him because it was his first big studio film. And by the way, like, if this is your first big studio film, it takes real cojones just to, like, to offer this up. Like, if, mm. if, if Universal come to you and say they want you to make a horror and you're like, okay, this is what I got, like... This is Carpenter, and this is unapologetically Carpenter, and this is uncensored Carpenter. And, like, he offered it up, it got released, it got mauled, it got made no money, it was released two weeks after E.T. in 1982. Oh, um, Yes, I think Kurt Russell has cited that as probably the primary reason that the film failed as poorly as it did. Uh, because people were sort of, if you want to go see a movie about an alien visiting Earth in 1982... You probably wanted to go for the feel-good Spielberg film, not the bleak, nihilistic, paranoid John Carpenter film. And it sort of, it only really came back into circulation through VHS and then through DVD and stuff and then found an audience and then became a classic. And it's like, it feels like one of those films that divided people. It talked, was you talked about it being polarizing and it is, it is. As yeah, immediately... that's the kind of what makes it strange about it being under 250, I guess. Yeah, well, it is one of the very few films like this on there. I can't think of a film that is as visceral and as gory and as like grindhouse this is in many ways it's a superbly made film uh, but in terms of aesthetic it's very grindhouse there's lots of lots of writhing lots of blood lots of gore and i can't think of anything on the 250 that sort of matches it on that level yeah it's it's i mean it's the difference between i'm not i'm not overly familiar with the with the with the kind of genre of, of grindhouse nor nor am i overly familiar with 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 i think trauma that i mentioned but is 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 the difference between that and and movies in those sort of genres is that this has less of a camp quality about it or that kid, might actually kitsch or 
that might actually be a fair point. There's very little in the thing that winks at the audience. Like it, it takes its premise entirely seriously and it crafts its movie incredibly. Like it takes everything it's in more the film. Like, the, like, like Jaws kind of in, in terms of like its, its tone. Yes, that's, exa- that's exactly it actually. And they're both, what's interesting is they're both arguably universal horror films, but they're not, they're not even what you would associate with universal horror films. They don't have the sort of camp winking gothic quality to them they just take their monster entirely seriously and fun fact actually about the the thing is that the opening uh it doesn't open with the universal logo it actually opens with white text saying universal pictures film you have to wait until the end credits to get the universal logo as you notice at the end after the anti-piracy warning i think that's sort of a sign that universal had no idea what they were doing with it that they didn't necessarily feel comfortable branding it as a universal studios film it's it's one of only i think four or five universal pictures productions not to open with that iconic kind of global logo and i think you're right actually and i think that they do they have that sort of they transcend being uh you know a, a movie when you say a movie is a thing you go and you pay and you see on the weekend and you forget about it and become a a film you know something permanent and something yeah sort of, definitely yeah. and even, even like the, we talked about jaws i spoke quite strongly about jaws and said it was a perfect movie and 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 this movie isn't, I guess, because there's it, it doesn't have... Jaws is a much more restrained movie. Like, Jaws, I yeah. could show my family. Jaws, I could show my mother who watched The Shining at the age of 17 yeah. and never wanted to watch a horror movie exactly. again. Exactly. And, and I could not show her this. No. No, and, and I think th- this has... It probably has less, like, great dialogue in it than, than Jaws. We, but, but that doesn't really kind of take away from the movie. It, it's, it seems it's, it's very kind of sparks and simple and that that works quite well and i think it. the lines that i think the lines that it has work very well like i think the closing lines are particularly effective mm. i mean i think the difference between this and say jaws is that jaws is jaws is a spielberg film and that it, i think spielberg at his heart always wants to win over an audience like he yeah. always wants to please an audience and he understands how to do it he can play the audience like an orchestra when he plays them very well like like Jurassic Park, which is also on the list, is an illustration of that because you have you've had sequels that have been directed by other directors, and even his own sequel, where you can see like the core premise is dinosaurs, and that should be that that should be a slam dunk. You cannot make a bad movie premise. Yeah. But you look at the original Jurassic Park and you look at the sequels, and it's just like yes, this is the difference between Spielberg and somebody else doing it. I think you're right when you say like you look at Jaws and you look at the thing. And like Jaws has that crowd pleasing quality. It has that all American quality to it. And I mean, yeah. like, because uh, we're going to talk, this has, has some sort of themes in common with, with Jaws that we're probably going to talk about. I may use the phrase great white vagina when talking about <laughs> the thing, but it is, it's a much more confrontational film, perhaps. It's a much more uncomfortable film. It's a much more unapologetic. I, watching the thing, and even though Carpenter talks about being hurt and how his career would have been very different if the thing had been received like the way that it's treated now i i I think there's a it's strange though i i can't see how he could have i don't know what he expected from (laughs) this movie because because like he had seen this movie you know made all the creative choices yeah yeah before it was released what does he think people are like (laughs) what does he think audiences are waiting for in the context of 1982 i mean Pretty summer nineteen eighty two. This was a summer film in nineteen eighty two. Yeah. In the wake of like a film like Jaws and Star Wars, which was established summer blockbusters. Like this is this is a very different film, and you can tell. Oh, it, I'd love to, I'd love to think that Universal were sitting there greenlight, and they're like, okay, is there a spaceship in it? Yes. Uh, that Kurt Russell, he looks manly. Yes. Um. Okay, go for it. How much money do you need? 
yeah, will will we will we go into kind of like t- t- it, talking about it in a bit more depth? I, yeah, I think we will. We've we've talked about whether it belongs on the list. We think we both think it does. We talked about whether we'd recommend other people see this movie, and I think we'd both give a very qualified yes. Exactly. Yeah, it's because it, it's a strange one. Like <laughs> like I'm I'm like like we've discussed kind of um, recently, kind of older movies. Um, foreign language movies and and we've talked about kind of like how it's good that the that these are on the list yeah because of kind of you know add, adding kind of um, diversity context, and flavor yeah, yeah. yeah and i and i and i think it's good to have movies like this as well yeah um and particularly because the genre is underrepresented as we talked yeah. about because i mean I grew up watching films like this with my gran and granddad when I was left when my parents mm. left me there ba- being babysat. We talked about this with The Shining, and I think The Thing is another movie that I saw in this context. I think like Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness were also movies I saw in that context. Which, by the way, terrible babysitting, but great grandparenting. Yeah, um, I really had the best grandparents. And The Thing, I have that strong attachment to, and it's rare to see movies that my granddad showed me because he he would have shown me all the Hammer horror films. He would have shown me all the other John Carpenter and Wes Craven films. It's rare to see them getting this praise. And I mean, even Carpenter, this is his only film on the 250 at the moment. The only other film he's made that has been on the 250 at all is Halloween, which I think is a very reductive and almost it's a disservice to him as a director and his contributions to the genre and and to filmmaking in general, like given his career. And so I think They Live is, is a fantastic movie that's massively underrated. I think like I think Prince of Darkness is amazing. I think that Assault on Precinct 13 is just fantastic. I think Escape from New York is incredibly fun and enjoyable and is hugely influential in terms of how we treat the apocalypse or the end of the world in modern pop culture. I think it's... But this, I'm really glad to see this get the recognition, the praise, and being on the list. Mm. With that in mind, then, we will segue gently into the spoiler zone. That's Andrew's impersonation of a thing or a victim of a thing. I don't know. <laughs> That's my Halloween kind of like um, soundtrack. I, re- I, re- I recently had my uh, phone stolen, so so I I won't get to debut my um, my soundboards that I downloaded. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Andrew. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, Andrew, what was the thing about? For... <laughs> You. Yeah, we're mostly going to make synthesizers. I don't have any sounds. air horns. <laughs> yeah. um, what was what, what was it about for me? That's an interesting question, and I don't know if I really have the answer because because like, what 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 it means what 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 it means to me um, straight off the bat, and I'm interested to hear kind of like the different things that are brought up for you because you're you're very good at at, at kind of like can I connecting movies with with not so obvious stuff and sometimes i'm like oh that's very interesting and sometimes i'm like what are you talking about <laughs> <Why are> you <laughs> <smoking>? <laughs> um, but for for me Thank this you. for me this was a classic body horror and i think it it speaks to the the the, the kind of disgust i guess that 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 is some some of it is conditioned and some of it is just kind of natural it's some it's something I think about a lot, um, and in in fact I was just speaking about like I think yesterday about how 
about how disgusting our bodies are. Our, our bodies are really disgusting. They are really disgusting. I mean, I don't know how much detail I want to... I, I mean, if you've already sat and watched the thing... There's nothing but, you can hear yeah. in this podcast so, that make you feel something I was thinking about yesterday is... When people when people defecate, they wipe themselves with a tissue. Right? I like the classiness of the word defecate, by the yeah. way. It's a very good PG thirteen word. Exactly. Go on, continue. They they wipe themselves with a tissue and then and then and then they're 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 finished, they flush, they wash their hands. If if that thing that 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 has has, has come out, out of you say was anywhere else, would you be satisfied? Wiping it with, with with a piece of tissue and then walking away from yeah, it. You would like, want to sterilize. If that was on your desk at work. <laughs> yeah, like a little bit of tissue. Yeah, but... but it was on you. Like and and, and I bodies are so disgusting. How like, like the, yeah. and that's that stuff. That stuff was is inside, is inside you. you right now. Yeah, on its way down, and yeah. you you will consume stuff that you will transform into it later. Yeah, I mean the thing about imagine like the, the, the like delicious wings, and yeah. then think about what like, they become at the end yeah. of the process, uh, particularly spicy wings. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think you're on it's, something. It, 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 um, yeah, and it, it's it's like and and you have inexplicably you have these kind of like boils and like warts and pimples and they just kind of like like bits happen of your out. body that are con- moving and without yeah, control your 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 hair is pushing out through, through your through skin, skin pores, and your yeah. and and your pores and then sometimes it it kind of gets stuck and all like and swells, infected yeah. and oh i'm sorry listeners I, but you you just watched the thing yeah i think i think you're tolerant you're very tolerant of this but yeah, yeah the amount of like the amount of mucus waste fluids that your body generates the cells that you shed the dust that you leave everywhere the fact that the yeah. air that you breathe is filled with the cells from people who have died centuries ago yeah like the fact that you're floating in the breeze yeah the of... fact that you leave these remnants of you no matter where you go and the fact that everything you touch has been touched by other people yeah. and you are basically moving through dust clouds of people who are long gone yeah and it's all very kind of like alien and weird and like 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 you're you you get you get struck in the ear and your 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 ear begins to fill with fluid and then it like hardens and and calcifies and you have this like deformed like piece of your ear yeah Uh, it's all of this kind of disgusting weird stuff I mean, yeah, even the idea of, like, even how the image from the outside world gets into your body by being reflected through the transparent liquids of your eyes and bent and distorted, perceived, the sound that moves through that's through it's the like little bones filled with, yeah, kind of, and vitreous like, and aqueous humour and yeah. stuff. Yeah, it is very disgusting to think about. And one of the things that's fascinating, one of the things that I think one of the reasons why that disturbs us is in part because of consciousness, because we like to assume that we are more than just ugly bags of mostly water. We like to assume that we are somehow higher or better than any other living organism, that we have an inherent goodness, that we transcend basic biological yeah, processes. It's a weird kind of a dichotomy, because yeah. we, we, we don't think of ourselves like this, I think. But like, like... No, and, and we expect it of animals. Like We understand that animals, like that monkeys are going to throw their feces yeah. or whatever, that dogs are going to roll around in the dirt, and, and, and basically, but, uh, yeah, it's when like, it comes to our biology, when, we're inherently, it's when, different. When, when dogs eat their own feces, like the disgusting dog. I'm sure if we ate our feces, we would have made peace with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> we would have we, processed it and sort of compartmentalized it yeah. and never really confronted it. We 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 
we would probably like if, have if, five star Michelin restaurants <laughs> and have yeah. uh, if we were if um if we were the pets of some superior um <laughs> alien species and they're like oh he's 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 eating he's he's eating his boogers he thinks I can't see him but, but I can. I, I'm watching I'm him, all the him with time. a newspaper <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it is, and I mean, there's this weird othering of, of bodies, which is very disgusting, which I think plays into into the film very, and, very well. And sexuality as well. Yes. I remember, I remember like having a conversation with 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 somebody who who was coming from a very kind of conservative, kind of uh, backwards, kind of um, homophobic views and they were talking about how they found um, the, like the idea of a man and another man having sex disgusting and I was like it's all disgusting have from you, from a certain like, yeah, like have you thought about how men and women have sex yeah, yeah have you thought about like your mother walking in while while you're <laughs> i try not to andrew i, I find exactly. it ruins the mood exactly but but like all of this stuff is disgusting to to someone in 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 out in of the, the right context, context of it well, no yeah. i mean even in context i mean the fact that you're putting your the the organs that you use to generate urea right into the organs of somebody else who generates urea um, All right, like we're, the, we're ruining is... sex. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, but but yeah, yeah. It is, and it, I, I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have as good sex ed as we should, is because of that level of, of swiftness. I think also it, it's one of the things that exists where you have the idea of women's bodies in particular tend to be older. And I mean, we're, I'm going to tie this back to the, the thing as well. The more you grow, the more you grow up, the less kind of um, the less disgusting that sort of um, thing becomes because it. it like at least for me but i think a lot of people kind of grow up with these kind of like neuroses well, around I... um not not just not just their own body but the interactions of their body with, with others yeah and i think that explains a lot of how we talk about sex as a society as well like i think that yeah. a lot of the response and even a lot of the victorian prudishness is a response to that sense of othering like it's a sense that you know victorian society was higher and better and beyond these base impulses and these disgusting routines and... <laughs> yeah you dress up children like they're grown-ups yeah. and yeah all this kind of because i mean there is like when you were a kid we're like, sort of denial of... about how these functions yeah. work Cause, i mean even when you were a kid for example i remember i think very few people actually heard about the facts of life from their parents i think you you had the chat with your parents but you'd already heard it filtered through the chinese whispers of how bodies work in oh, schools yeah. and as a kid it, like it... sex was terrifying like sex was a really hard why, why would anybody in the name of goodness want to do that and then as you get older you're like actually i can see why people would want to do that yeah I mean, it, 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 it's it certainly scared me like even on uh, like like i wasn't ready for for like e even even though i had all of these kind of like 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 the idea of 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 anything actually happening because because i remember I was, I was always really into girls like certainly from like age six or seven like there were, i was always kind of infatuated with 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 some girl in my class or, or but i'm guessing it was mostly romantic so i think it was like yeah. i'm gonna marry and have a family but i have no idea what that entails yeah if if they had actually liked me back i i, I would be very uncertain of what to then do because yeah. it's, it's, it's like the the my um heart would have been like thumping at the idea of like even holding their hand yeah like but yeah the the it's it like like as you grow older like 
you're, you're you make peace with it but you make peace with it by not really thinking about it for example i would have difficulty drinking from the same glass as somebody else but i have no problem with sex and that's because i'm an adult who's learned to internalize and sort of like compartmentalize that that aspect of myself but i think there is a there is an element of body horror to you're right when you say that people's reaction to their bodies is to treat them as unnatural when they think about them and so they try not to think about them and i think what yeah. the thing does is it confronts i you. always find it strange when 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 you talk about these kind of things and people are like oh jesus like um but i i, I well i think that talking I about really, it makes it fresh though like i, I mean you, you try yeah. not, the way that you respond to these anxieties about your own body is not to think about them and then talking about them makes you think about them so you get defensive the thing the thing is yeah that that the like, thing is <laughs> the everyone has like a, a different threshold yeah. of of kind of like disgust and um comfort and yeah stuff. like i'm very comfortable i guess about uh, like i'm probably less comfortable on the podcast so you can imagine how, <laughs> <laughs> how you are in real life yeah yeah but about uh, talking about these kind of like um uh, By the way, a lot of a lot things. a lot of Andrew's threshold comes from my vicious editing of the podcast. <laughs> um, Andrew is unfiltered. Uh, it's only when I edit the podcast that you get these sort of lacunas. But no, I I think you're right, and I think it is. I think one of the things that's so effective about the thing is it makes the human body alien. It makes yeah. it it makes it hostile and distorts it and it bends it. I mean, even yeah. when you're looking at the. The frozen skeleton of the thing before it starts moving, before it starts consuming other people. There's something inherently wrong about it. There's a line in the movie where um, Dr. Blair is performing an autopsy because what's happened? I mean, you've seen the movie, but yeah. what's what's happened is um, the movie starts with 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 this Norwegian kind of. I'll try and summarize this as quickly as I can. This uh, Norwegian team chasing a um a a dog who's who we find out later has been infected, infected. with with these aliens who've crash landed on on earth none thousands of, this, of years thousands ago thousands of years ago none of this is particularly important and the doctor who's who, blair whose name is blair is, is is taking out the organs and he says these these are normal human uh, organs so it's organs. like heart intestines yeah, lungs yeah. Which 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 kind of made me think about like is are, yeah are they are they are they they're they're trying to relate like the horror of this movie to the reality of 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 your body as it is. Well, one of the fun facts about that scene is that the the character is played by Wilfred Brimley. Brimley um was a farmer or like he was pretty close to being a real life cowboy. So he would actually have done stuff like gutting animals and killing animals and sort of birthing animals and stuff like that. He so when the, animals? Oh, sorry, <laughs> or delivered animals. Oh. Uh, but um, when when they were filming the scene, all the all the rest of the cast who had never was, seen the film he was before, definitely a character in the thing. Yeah, he's giving birth to like <laughs> yeah. an animal. There's yeah. a horse coming out, out of, of him. Yeah, 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 out of various parts of him. I like the fact that Wilfred Brimley is is an actor and a, and a character in the thing. But it is like he had he basically he'd taken care of animals. He'd worked on a farm, so all of this was fairly okay to him. Which is why when you're watching the scene, the other actors who have not seen the prop before who have like not seen animals being cut open and have not handled like the insides of creatures are clearly more disturbed with this than Brimley is, which is yeah. a nice touch. It's a very, very nice touch. Because when he's taking that and he's noting that they're like human organs, he's 
surprisingly comfortable dealing with it. I said it was like very little acting <laughs> required. <laughs> I want you to feel disgusted, terrified, yeah, and yeah. Uh, unsettled. Except you, um, your character, like yourself, is used to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there is, because it's, it's one of the really great things about the thing, um, just on a pure plotting level, is, and uh, we'll talk a bit more depth about how I think it subverts a lot of the conventional tropes of horror, because I think it does, them very, it does that very, very yeah. cleverly. Do but you, one of the smaller you, touches is that... Do you think as a society that we've become kind of soft as well? Like, soft? soft? Yeah. Like, the, the, so you mean that we balk uh, at this, whereas yeah, farmers like, are like, no, this is just yeah. a circle of life. Like, for example, a lot of people who eat meat aren't comfortable with the realities of... How meat is produced. Of how meat is produced. Well, and example, I, fe- I feel like that that's a kind of... You'd, you'd, hypocrisy you want to say yeah hypocrisy? yeah i feel like it but maybe i'm just saying that because i'm a person who eats meat who is comfortable with the <laughs> the, uh, the slaughtering process yeah, with well um, obviously like i'm i'm i i believe in in um, humane yeah exactly no um, no i mean i mean i think that's fair like my brother was a vegetarian for several years because he he watched a documentary about an abattoir he became a meat eater again once he's now a doctor and he's experimenting on and dissecting animals right. and stuff. So he's he's made peace with the fact of how it happens and cutting up animals and stuff like that. One of my and again, this is another Darren family story. My gran grew up on a farm and so she would be familiar with this sort of thing. Yeah. And one of her favourite uh routines and habits, uh, which is something that when I was younger I was quite embarrassed by, but as I as I grew older I kind of think of one of the cooler things about her was that whenever her friends were there, uh, or at barbecues or, or at some sort of uh occasion when we would be eating meat gran would take the time to go into great depth about how she worked on the farm and the particulars of what she would do to certain animals in order to prepare them for food um in a way that was almost i think what you were talking about sort of being cheeky and being sort of a little bit provocative about how meat yeah. is prepared and how uncomfortable people are like talking about how yeah. meat is prepared while and, eating and meat like i feel like you, you kind of don't get to 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 enjoy that if you're if 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 you can't confront how it was made now i'm gonna be honest yeah, i am I, i'm a hypocrite in that respect i don't like to think about it while i'm eating it and i can understand that but i i do accept that yeah there is a sense of i could probably i could probably slaughter an animal but i wouldn't feel comfortable doing it and it wouldn't be my first choice and i i wouldn't do it unless i absolutely had to like stranded in the wild going to die sort yeah. of level you know well i i, I know that people feel very strongly about about kind of about these issues and I I like to kind of talk to people about these uh, these these sorts of things, but I I know it can also be quite emotive. Yeah. So I know like from 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 what? even saying saying that I eat meat and and I'm um, aware of how it is processed yeah. and where it comes yeah. from. Like I I think people should eat much less meat, and I think it's good that there are people who don't eat any meat because I think that reduces the amount of meat that's eaten. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, sorry, we're we're getting kind of off topic. Well, no, I think but, it, it ties back into that yeah. idea of things that people don't like to think about, which is the idea that their bodies are made of meat, basically. Yeah, uh, which and is that, and that the food they they're they're eating was alive at some point. Yeah, yeah, and that it's the result of sort of this horrible graphic process that we don't really want to be confronted with. And it's 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 like oh don't don't eat that it fell on the ground it's, it's like well your your where else is the vegetables <laughs> grew up in the ground yeah and and it, it everything has that kind of connection to to, it's to something kind of funny that you should actually talk about about this uh, in relation to this film because one of the things that Carpenter did was he he 
changed the 1951, the thing from another world, in several ways. But one of the key things was the creature itself. In that the creature in the thing from another world was much more, it looked like he described it as a carrot, as a gigantic carrot. Oh. And one of his conscious decisions was to make it look more like meat, like an yeah. animal. And I think that that's playing into what you're talking about. I think that's a very conscious effort to make you uncomfortable and with I think, the body. I think it was more like a meat, more more like meat than an animal. Yes, in that it didn't yeah. have fur, for example. Yeah. When it, when you saw it, now obviously when it was in the shape of a person, it looked like a person. But generally it looked like it, it had this sort of clammy skin. It, like it had it muscle. It kind of been butchered a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a scene where it's consuming the dogs in the, in the kennel, for example. Yeah. And they're basically, they've been stripped of fur. And they look like they could be hanging upside down in an abattoir almost. In fact, I sort of I wonder if that's a point that, Ca- that Carpenter's kind of making. Is that like we are disgusted by the way the creature consumes the animals and the dogs and stuff. Even though it's not that dissimilar from how we do it in terms of skinning an animal, stripping it down. It's just it's the same basic biological process. It's just done in a way that unnerves us and unsettles us because it sort of confronts our own discomfort with how we consume and how we eat and how we feed. If there was like an animal walking around just like covered in blood, <laughs> <laughs> like dripping off with like its bones exposed and and you're like, are you okay? Is this the way you're meant to look? <laughs> yeah. Um, but these, these, these kind of, um, these, I, I feel like it makes a kind of, it, it makes a kind of a point. Because why, why have these, why have these animals appear like, like um, this? Yeah, like, like, like they're being kind of in their natural state. They look like they're, they're, they're being digested. Being, their meat. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it's very, very, very effective. I think. Actually, let's talk a little bit about the special effects. Because you mentioned this. You're a big fan of RoboCop. I'm a big fan of RoboCop. But you're like a super fan of RoboCop. I know. I'm a lover of RoboCop. I'm not like an expert. Or... You've listened to the commentary and stuff like that. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. And you have very strong views about Paul Verhoeven's views about unisex I, dressing rooms. I, 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 I saw something. Oh, but it's, 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 speaking of Verhoeven. And unisex he... dressing rooms? The uh, the the very bad, the very poor sequel to Starship Troopers. Well, I'm 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 not, I'm not mad about that series to be honest, but uh, Starship Troopers Two is essentially um, a kind of like a version of, of of this movie. Oh yeah, well this this where, movie where has it, like a huge pop culture shadow, which we'll talk about. Yeah, later. there's 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 a lot of these kinds of movies. Yeah. Where and and we talked about it being like Cluedo, but but where but where yeah, you're you're in kind of like an isolated compound and one by one you're kind you're of being picked off yeah, and somebody's yeah. not who and they say they are you have to discover kind of like who is the who is, who is the, the monster and in yeah. this case it's a literal monster yeah because i mean it is worth stressing for example like one of the themes or one of the things that interests me about the thing is this recurring fascination with duplicates and copies shapeshifters, uh, shapeshifters yeah. and things that are imitations of themselves and i mean that's even reflected in the quality of the in the in the film itself right because the film itself as a, a meta textually it is a remake of a 1951 film that is an adaptation of a short story by john w campbell um it is however within the narrative itself the, what's happening in the american camp is quite explicitly a repeat of what happened in the Norwegian camp to begin with, to the point where right. the the sequel slash prequel um, slash remake <laughs> that was released in two thousand eleven 
it's it's somehow both a remake and a prequel to the film because it, it explores what happens in the Norwegian camp in a way that is very blatantly exactly what happened in the American camp. The um, <laughs> interesting that the movie started and I was like, no, little, I was like the doggo. <laughs> why, why are they hurting? They're the trying to shoot that little pupper. And, um, <laughs> and Andrew's mood quickly changed. Yeah, and then I realized, kind of, because, because I hadn't seen The Thing, but what I had seen was a, an adaptation of The Thing with, uh, with Pingu. Oh, Thingu, yeah. which we'll include in the show notes, because it's actually it's brilliant. It's amazing. It is fantastic. And, and I think it, 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 was, it was taken down a few times, but John Carpenter loved it. Yeah. And um and thankfully it's 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 up at the moment because I think every time it gets taken taken yeah, down it gets somebody put back copies up, it again which is which which is brilliant because because so I already kind of knew um, which direction a little it was bit going. about this movie based on just seeing Pingu, uh, <laughs> the, sorry uh, Pingu Pingu yeah but it is one of the the. <laughs> I wonder if, if if John Carpenter didn't have a problem with it. Maybe the Pingu people did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suspect that's probably where the problem came from. Yeah. In that I think it's... Like, well, I mean, it's interesting that you should mention the opening scene with the, with the Norwegians chasing the dogs. And you have that sort of... Like, if any of anybody in the camp had spoken Norwegian, they would understand exactly what was oh, going yeah. on. Oh, yeah. Because it is it, the, the actual translation of the dialogue the from Norwegian, Norwegian people had been able to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> this problem would have been greatly resolved. Well, actually, one of the interesting things about the film is that it's set in Antarctica in this sort of remote location. Um, and interestingly enough, they show they have a double feature at the start of every winter in Antarctica where all the camps come together and they watch The Thing and then they watch The Shining. Oh. And... I'm going to be honest, if I were in Antarctica, I probably wouldn't find those two movies comforting going into <laughs> a winter that lasts for six months. But, um, well, yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff uh, reminiscent about about The Shining in this, like the, the, the kind of... Like the smashing of the radio with an axe, for example. Yeah, so like yeah. a direct scene, the snow they've, crawler. They've, they've the... destroyed the, 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 the helicopter. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Trapping them in this remote location surrounded by snow. Like, it really is. It's one of those great isolation horror movies. And it's one of those things where... And it's one of the things that interests Carter, because he revisits it in his thematic trilogy, which is The Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, is this idea of a bunch of people on the edge of the world, stranded and cut off from anything else, who discover that they need to prevent something horrible from getting out. And in doing so, they'll have to sacrifice their lives. And I mean, at the very end of the movie, MacReady is quite explicit in that he knows that none of them are going to survive to the mm. end of the movie. None of them are going to survive this experience. All they have to do is just stop the thing from escaping or from freezing and being recovered and thus repeating the whole cycle all over again. Because I mean, one of the many interesting things that sort of grabs me about this film is how... It sort of, we talked about this earlier when it plays with the, the conventions of the horror movie in a, in a number of interesting ways. And one of them is, I think it's very clever, is that the African-American characters survive until almost the very end of the movie, which is, yeah. is fantastic. Which is Because you're conditioned through years of watching horror movies to expect the black guy to die first, the point where like Orlando Jones pointed it out in, I think, Evolution. Uh, but in this movie, there are two African-American characters and they survive until the end of the movie pretty much Knowles and Childs Childs yeah and, and Knowles Childs actually survives yeah Childs is at the very end with McGreedy we don't see there. Knowles die no we don't we see him wander off and then he's, he disappears so it's entirely possible Knowles is just wandering out there by himself now yeah then that's like a few minutes later <laughs> yeah he uh, comes back what the hell happened Knowles uh, wanders into the the um, 
Mexican little cabin with, with 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 McCready and and, and Charles. Charles. And Charles is like, come on, Mark. <laughs> you know whose side you are. Well, I mean, you say that, but it's it's interesting. One of the remakes of the thing that we're talking about, because there are a lot of movies that are heavily inspired, is The Hateful Eight. Right. Uh, which is explicitly, I think Tarantino has talked about in this remake, because it, first of all, it stars Kurt Russell. Um, yeah. Its score is written by Ennio Arconi, who used some of the samples from his original rejected soundtrack to the thing. We'll probably talk about his soundtrack a little bit later. Yeah. Um, it's about a bunch of strangers who are trapped in the ice together, where it's discovered that one or more of them is not who they say they are, to the point where... I think that Tarantino actually borrowed some dialogue. Like, there's a point in this movie where McReady says, basically, Somebody in this camp ain't what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. And there's a line in the trailer um, to The Hateful Eight where Kurt Russell hears the line, One of them fellas is not what he says he is. And you get that sort of, like, that parallel unfolding between the two. There's also... Yeah. And you're you're a fan of the hateful eight. Aren't I you? love the hateful eight. I think it's fantastic. I think a lot of your Scotland friends are. No, no, they're not. Um, a lot of and a lot of people online are also not a fan. But one of the things that I like about it is that it is explicitly about race. It's about like stranding people in this great white hell and then just watching society fall apart. Because one of the things about the thing and and sorry when we talk about it subverting it by letting the black guys survive to the end you know in most horror movies you have this sort of bit where somebody's seen the monster and somebody else hasn't seen the monster and you have like half an hour where everybody's trying to, somebody's trying to convince the other characters that the threat is real one of the things i like about the thing is that it just gets everything out of the way up front there's never a situation where say mccready has seen the monster but nobody else has and they all think he's crazy there's a case where they've all seen the monster in the paddock attacking the dogs and they've all sort of responded to it and so they can get to, in theory, they can get to problem solving it. Now, of course, they, they don't really. They, they turn upon themselves. But you avoid that sort of horror movie cliche where there's one Cassandra who can see the truth. It's more like everybody has seen the thing. It's just that everybody has a different reaction to it. Some people become paranoid and introverted. Blair begins to worry about it possibly getting out and infecting. McReady is forced to become the leader of the group. You have Fuchs become sort of paranoid. You have all these other sort of dynamics at play. But what the thing does is it avoids sort of playing into that trap of like having one character who has seen the monster and everybody else thinks it's crazy and you have this process of denial. In the thing, everybody sees the monster immediately the drama just comes from how differently they respond to that. And I think that's a very clever subversion. Is It's also a movie without a final girl. It's in a very macho, very masculine movie. All the, all the people at the base camp are male. To the point yeah. where... And There's it's, no woman in the entire movie. There are a couple of women, but they're, they're on TV. Or they're in the chess computer oh, played yeah, by yeah. Adrian Babo. Like, to the point where... But one of the things about the thing is it's explicitly coded in those terms. Like the first dialogue in the film is when MacReady is playing like chess on the computer. Poor baby, you're starting to lose it, aren't you? And then when the computer beats him, it's like, <laughs> like it's explicitly gendered. And Anne Bilson, who we talked about earlier, has actually argued, and it's a, a cheeky and provocative argument, is that there is a female character in the thing and that female character is the thing itself. Oh. The thing is basically a female entity intruding into a male space, and that is all about reproduction. It's all about consuming. I think she even makes an argument about the male gaze. So, for example, like you'll notice at several points in the film, male characters are transfixed, staring at and watching the thing, oh, and yeah. sort of curious. Like Childs, for example, when he shows up at the kennel with the flamethrower, yeah, and later on when Knowles sees, um, and instead of saying, "Hey, 
<laughs> McCready. <laughs> Look at this. It's like, oh, um, <laughs> no, that 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 might spoil my kind of like <laughs> show that I'm getting here. Yeah. If I say it too loud, or yeah. yeah, it is kind of like like what reason does he have for for not being like guys burn burn McCready? <laughs> yeah. Her, like. Why does he go towards it yeah. rather than away from it? Like, and, yeah. And there is this sort of recurring sense and there's this this anxiety that runs through it, I think, about masculinity because it's about a bunch of men stranded together and they're all hyper-masculine. Like, as soon as the crisis breaks out, they all run for guns and for flamethrowers and stuff like that. Which, by the way, to be clear, Antarctica... Nations tend to be very strict about the use of firearms in Antarctica for, you know, reasons related to, like, uh, territory and control and it existing as a neutral space. So while, for example, the flamethrower, the flares, and arguably even the grenades make sense, like the giant gun cabinet in the American base is a bit, uh, a bit of a stretch. Well, apparently. I mean, the the rules are that it's like it it's not owned by any one country, but it's owned by man. <laughs> so like like they yeah. they have guns not to protect them from <laughs> other other countries, but to protect them from the polar bear revolt. Or... Yeah. Or potential alien invasion. And stuff. Actually, hold on. Are there polar bears there? Penguins. <laughs> Penguins, yeah. <laughs> Thingu is more accurate than yeah, we like to yeah. pretend it is. Yeah. But there is there's this interesting sort of undercurrent of like masculinity sort of simmering through it. And I think it's very clever and it's very subversive and it's very wry. Because, I mean, in these, these narratives have been discussed, like, one of the things about horror movies, about slasher movies, is that there's an element of like voyeurism and, and sort of catharsisism through it where it's like watching these nubile young women who are getting chased and stalked and sort of slaughtered and like even carpenter's halloween is a, is a great example of that the voyeurism of like watching the couple having sex i mean halloween is one of the movies that coded that the virgin you know the virgin survives if you if you lose if you give up your virginity you become fair game for the monster the kind of rule that was codified by scream for example right and i think that one of the things about the thing that is particularly fascinating is that it's sort of it's unsettling because there's a bunch of men trapped together in a confined space with a creature that is reproducing and spreading and infecting and like contaminating through fluids. Because one of the more common reads of the film is that it's an allegory for AIDS and HIV, in that you oh, have this idea of an organism that, that can makes replicate itself. a lot itself. of sense in ter in terms of the, t the kind of like time of of, of the of, movie. Well. Some critics would argue that the time is a little bit too tight. Now, Carpenter, Carpenter has argued on yeah, the commentary. Actually, maybe not. I, I well, suppose it was, it was kind of. It was it, first it diagnosed was, in 1983, I think. It had spread in the late 70s. It was a while until Reagan kind of acknowledged it existed, yeah. and I think that mainstream America acknowledged it existed. But I think that it was first recognized in 1983 officially, in that it was first sort of recognized. The HIV virus was first separated, which was after the release of this film. But Carpenter, for his part, has argued on the commentary that he was inspired by that, by the mood, by the anxiety, by the tension of it. And I think I'm, I, we've talked a bit in the podcast where when you have this sort of conflict of sources, where you have like the writer and the director saying one thing and you have like the facts that are laid out on the other hand, like, do you tend to give benefit of the doubt to the director who was actually working on it or is, is his memory prone to distortion? And I mean, it is hard to say, but I think that in hindsight, it holds up very well as an AIDS allegory. Like, there's a point where there's a point where McReady visits Fuchs, who's the guy who's very paranoid about the spread of this thing, and he suggests that in order to test the blood, they should all use separate needles. 
which again okay. feels like something from an AIDS. And, and the fact that when McGreedy tests them, it's a blood test, and they're worried about the blood being the blood being contaminated, infectious, and attacking the blood literally leaping out of the little saucer and attacking them. And then is is there something then about kind of about them all being men and there being a kind of a um, perception like, at that time yeah. about how AIDS works that yeah. it was it was the gay plague I think was how it was publicized and stuff yeah. like that. I think there probably is. I think there's an element of that to it. I, I think that there's a very definite... You can read a lot of homoeroticism into it. And, and there is... There tends to be in these sort of action movies about manly men. And it's it's one of the things when you watch old movies, the undercurrents are always there, but they're never really explored. Like where, but, yeah, like... <laughs> well, like where you wonder how aware the movie is of the undercurrent of homoeroticism running through these men together in tough yeah. circumstances, sort of forged. I wonder if they're like acutely aware like we are yeah or if they're just sort of winkingly well i mean it is worth noting that when the creature as oh, the yes, dog listeners we know yeah we are all, we are on top of this <laughs> we've, and we've each seen other some of that fanfic yeah and the art um, yeah but i mean even when the dog infects its first person um when the dog infects the first member of the crew it does so in its bedroom Remember, it wanders down the hall and you see the silhouette. And one of the things I like about the thing is the ambiguity, because we talked about this earlier, but a lot of the movie is structured so that you're never sure who is infected by whom at what point. Like, so for example, when the dog goes in to attack its first victim in the bedroom, the silhouette, there's no way of knowing who that silhouette belongs to. Right. Because... And we think it's Clark, but it's not. Yeah, because he's gotten later. And then there's... there's... No, he, he, he turns out never to have... Because they tested his blood. Oh yes, sorry, you're right, actually. Yeah. Now who am I thinking? I'm thinking so the guy who gets misdirect. Where, yeah. where, where, where? And we're going to test you last. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Clark is Clark is the guy who cares for the dogs, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah. And so he's the guy who's suspected. Who who the audience thinks definitely is a thing. Yeah. And who isn't? And then there's this sort of like being honest. Like I remember when I first watched it, I thought it was. And like this, we're actually looking through the pictures to actually remember the names, which is the great thing about a cast this size. But I actually, I, I I like the 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 part where, um, Kurt Kurt Russell McCready has killed Clark. It's where Child Childs points out, yeah, you're now a murderer, and it's like, yeah, but we're all going to die, so we <laughs> so we can really break doesn't... all the laws we want. We can we can gamble here, which, as you know, is outlawed in Antarctica. In fact, I'm going to claim this entire continent for the United States. <laughs> Call it McReadyville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they could kind of like, you know what? <laughs> like, Let's just go wild. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, this is one of the things about the film is that it... Let's break copyrights. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice at the end of the credits when the ominous music rises, this... you get a nice copyright notice as well. This might seem like Moby Dick, but I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the bestseller in Antarctica because you're going to buy a copy or yeah. I'm going to flamethrow you. Um, but like there, there is this sense threat that you never know when a particular character has been infected and when they've been spread. So, for example, um, obviously, uh, you know, Dr. Blair is infected at some point in, in the movie at because point, he builds a giant a, spaceship. A, that is weird. Yeah, just he burrows underneath his sort like, of shack. What? Yeah, it's just like I, I sort of scramble this from stuff. But you also find out, like, earlier in the movie, he's breaking the radio and he's sabotaging the helicopter. So you're sort of wondering at That's what point... That's kind of, like, consistent with him being a an eccentric... Well, a paranoid, yeah. Yeah, who's... who's Trying to protect mankind. Yeah, yeah, and he's realised, kind of, uh, 
rationally that um, this thing needs to be contained. Yeah, and that there's a seventy-five percent chance that, that one or more the have... computer in this is is fantastic. It, the... It's one of those, and you know, they actually have to design that spe- specially. Like it's like the introduction oh, yeah, to Escape the from New York. Abstract. Yeah, but yeah. they had to actually they had to actually get a computer animator to animate it to like, make it work. Never like... say never again. <laughs> yeah. With the war game, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is. It's got that sort of feel to it. Because I mean, you have to wonder like what software Blair has on his computer that routinely like calculates how long it would take a given alien organism to infect all <laughs> of the planet down to the hour. It's an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, um, there are lots of variables going on. Yeah, here. but it's, it's... A, there is a formula for that. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me about the thing, and kind of like, because we talked about how it's mysterious and how it doesn't really provide all the answers. And one of the questions I've always wondered is, do you realize you are a thing before you transform? Like, do you know that you are a thing before your skull cracks open and there are teeth inside and there's like a flaring sort of tongue or tentacles whipping out of you? Or are you so perfect an imitation that you think you're human until it's absolutely necessary, until something inside of you responds viscerally. Because there's a point where, like, when they're burning uh, the body, where Childs sort of turns to, um, where Childs turns to MacReady and says, look... If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? And there's a point where MacReady says, look... I know I'm human. One of the big, one of the more unsettling things about the thing for me is the question of, do you realise... You've been yeah, transformed? And, and I think it kind of goes against the idea that these creatures realize the thing because the there's an idea kind of throughout it that somewhere here there's an alien and the alien knows it's an alien and it's going to try and stop MacReady. So, oh, obviously um, uh, Clark also. Is, is, is an alien because you see... Clark's murderous intent yeah, with for McCready, but Clark isn't an alien. Yeah, he's just trying to uh, to to kill McCready because because McCready has a flamethrower and is holding <laughs> everyone hostage. Um, and also possibly because he hurt the dogs. And all, yeah. Like one of the things I like about the thing is that you get a sense of who these characters are in a small sense. I like that we're saying this even though we can't remember all their names, but like. A lot of these characters have distinct personalities and traits in some respects. Like like Clark, you know, cares about the animals more than he cares about the people, it seems, for example. Like, uh, Fuchs is They're the... all fairly, yeah. fair, fair, fairly memorable, yeah. kind of, in, 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 in their own way. It, it's, it, I, I think when we watch Aliens, I was kind of like... <laughs> Who are most of these recruits yeah. apart from Vasquez? Yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like they're all kind of like distinct and... Like, I do wonder if that existential sort of sense of, do I know I'm a thing if I don't know that you're a thing, kind of reflects a sort of a end of the Cold War existential anxiety that you saw a lot in kind of 80s and 90s pop culture, the idea that the, the Cold War is literally over. I mean, in this case, you literally have a thaw of the alien ship, which unleashes the monster, which is kind of like the end of the Cold War almost. But you have this idea, this question of like, Without an enemy to define us, or without an enemy against which we can measure ourselves, without a Cold War being waged, how do we know who we are? And that sort of filters through into like these existential questions in, in like the 90s movies, like I said, The Matrix or Dark City, or you know, 13th Floor, Harsh Realm, all these other kind of The Truman Show, Ed TV, this sort of like, is reality a dream sort of stuff. 
But even in the 80s, like, you have to keep in mind that Blade Runner was another sort of 1982 science fiction movie that was released to poor reviews, but which became a kind of a cult classic, but which is based around this question of, do I know really who I am? Do I know who the people around me are? And this sort of, like, question of doubt and uncertainty that isn't necessarily about an enemy so much as about the friends or the self or the, the entity or the system in which you invested yourself, which is this sort of Reagan-era fear that the Cold War is winding down and, and maybe perhaps America itself, perhaps this idea of the good guys doesn't really apply, that the infiltration is not necessarily like communist sleepers or sympathizers, but is instead something more banal or existential, this idea of the day-to-day -day living, capitalism, you know, the, the compromises that have been made and necessary to win the Cold War, that there's this disconnect and this anome and this sense that people are not really part of the community that's been eroded, and maybe even that they don't know themselves as much as they would like to think that they do. But yeah, one of the things then that's sort of, one of the things that grabs me about the thing is that sort of existential fear. Because the movie, we, talk, we talked about this before about how like, it's adapting a 1950s horror movie, which would have been about communism. Right. And it is very much like the, the 1951, The Thing from Another World, is about, you know, a bunch of explorers who catch this infectious organism, who work together as a team to defeat it um, and preserve their individuality. One of the interesting things about the wave of remake of, 50, of 50s horror movies in the late 70s and into the 80s was the kind of the inversion of that dynamic. Where, like, originally communism had been this all-consuming, identity-destroying threat. Whereas in the late 70s and into the 80s, as sort of the rise of Reaganism and sort of this, this emergence of, like, conformity, you had this sort of fear and anxiety that maybe, maybe the force that was driving conformity was not the communist threat in the East. It was instead the political atmosphere in the US itself. Like, for example... The idea that, like, and Wes Craven does it very well in, for example, Nightmare for Elm Street, where you have this beautiful, idyllic community that's built on these lies created by these parents in order to, like, create the illusion of a perfect society. Or The People Under the Stairs is another horror film that does it. Or Carpenter's Even They Live, uh, which is, is very much about conformity and about forcing people to sort of stay in line. I do wonder if, like, one of the ideas of the thing is this notion that you may be a thing and not even realize it, that you may be infected, contaminated, assimilated even, oh, to use the word. Yeah. Like, kind of like, and it's, it's kind of like the Borg on Star Trek. It's this fear of being part of something bigger than yourself. Because the thing, every individual cell of the thing is an organism, is its own organism that will work to preserve itself. So that's why the blood jumps out. But somehow it's able to come together to fashion a gigantic monstrous organism that's built of all these different heads and faces. Like, there are points where faces burst out of the thing's abdomen, even though it already has a face. Yeah. And it's this idea that it's like this gestalt sort of, like, zeitgeist entity almost. It's this sort of, like, body composed of multiple bodies that is, you know, somehow greater than the sum of its parts, where it's sort of swallowed and digested people. And it's... Because it does talk about how the thing digests and consumes people. And... There is, like, for me, I've always sort of wondered if that was a commentary on, like, early 80s Reaganism. This idea of, like, whether you had to fit in and you had to conform and whether you were really you or whether you were part of, like, a system or you were sort of, like, complicit in, like, this this process of, like, late-stage capitalism. You know? Or am yeah. I reading too much into it, do you think? No, no, I think that's interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm kind of... I'm, I, I'm not sure you have me yet, though. Okay. Um... As in, as in, it feel, it feel, it feels like. I mean, to, to, 
tell tell me tell me I guess what what in the movie made 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 it clear or that 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 was something that was being being kind of in, intended or what what are the kind of signposts because like without without saying kind of I suppose what what in the movie kind of supports that that interpretation. Well, I mean, there's the bit um, after they've sort of burnt the body where McReady basically says he talks about the thing or the alien existing, like how he knows that it's there. And it's it's I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. But he's talking about, like, his nightmare is a world where the thing has won, where there will be nothing left but the thing itself. And I sort of wonder if that's a reflection, like, at the start of the 80s when the Cold War was thawing and when it looked like, kind of, it was very clear that the United States had won. It was just taking Russia a very long time to concede the point that there was this question of, like, what happens next in the aftermath? And I think that there is a sense that maybe the thing represents this sort of... Uh, post-Cold War America, this sort of like, this conformity, this idea of like fitting in, of there only being one, the unipolar moment, as Krauthammer called it, the end of history, as uh, Fukunawa would suggest at the end. And, and I think that there is this sort of palpable anxiety. And I mean, you see it reflected maybe even in the choice of environment, the the white snowscapes, which which in the blizzard, in the storm coming, the white skyscapes, it becomes difficult to see where these characters are to get a sense of orientation of, of what they belong. They're sort of insignificant. They don't really matter. Most of the characters spend the movie with like ski masks on and goggles and their faces covered up to a point where it can be very difficult to tell who is whom in the outdoor scenes. And I think that this all sort of plays into the idea of there being this issue of conformity and this issue of like whether people are distinct or assimilated and like what happens in this world where everybody has been assimilated and sort of like chewed into this gestalt sort of consciousness i mean it gets back to what i was wondering earlier which is like what does a world where the thing is one look like does it I suspect it might look quite like our world as it is now, where all of us have been duplicated perfectly by this organism. And we're all living our lives sort of pretending to be this sort of perfect world or this this people who we were. And they're only the flashing glimpses when we're threatened of like tentacles and skulls cracking open and us realizing that our world is false in those moments. Except maybe we go back to assimilated to believing we are who we appear to be um until it's it's called for again i mean does the thing even have a natural form is the thing anything but a copy i mean these these things are, are sort of fascinating to think about and i sort of wonder what does the thing actually want what does it want to accomplish beyond survival like is it is it trying to it's trying to build a spaceship is it trying to, to get away is it trying yeah, to i think it wants to get home does it want to get home or does it want to spread I mean, I, I don't know. to get home. Because, right. yeah, that, 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 that is what it sets out to do. It, 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 it's, um... Well, it builds a spaceship under the... Blair builds a spaceship under the shack. But the other, the other creatures seem intent on spreading. Like, the other guys seem to... Like, they seem quite happy to just well, wait. I think and... it's, it's, um, it's protecting itself. So, the, 
Because this is interesting. Then. I, if it's I, trying I, to get away, do you yeah, think it I, does it pose a threat? I think, to the... I, I, I think I think it poses a threat in, to the extent that it, that it, that it's trying to protect itself from being flamethrowered. Yeah, and the, I, like I I think they they say it several times that that it's off that 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 is peeved as they say they, it, well yeah it, because it woke it woke up it's it, cranky people it, show up with flame in the, in the in the cable uh version of robocop it would be <laughs> this is what happens when you find a stranger uh, in the elves dick, dick jones is not someone you want to peeve off but yeah so what you're saying yeah. is the guys at the base peeved off this uh this alien menace yeah it woke up peeved off Massively hungover, just yeah. crashed a spaceship. Yeah, and it's it like... was being kind of um, having stuff stuck in it, <laughs> like 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 often happens in these kinds of. When you wake up, you've yeah. had a good weekend. What? what? <laughs> no. um, I I mean, in in these kind of like alien or uh, the recent Feature life films, yeah, or yeah. Um, yeah, you saw Where, life, did you? I didn't, but I I've, 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 I've <laughs> I feel confident it. Peaking, yeah, piecing it together. A, yeah, a kind of yeah, the 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 whole idea, kind of in these. In these um, alien Science. movies, where it's like, no, don't poke it, um, yeah, because <laughs> it will only start poking back. Yeah, did, did like so. What I think happened is, it it woke up in a strange environment, surrounded by things um, that look as horrifying yeah. to it as we do. And, to, yeah, as and, as and, and, and all and and then tried to defend itself. Um, well, tried to have a snack with the other dogs. Although I suppose they were growling, you could say they were threatening to attack it. Yeah, I, 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 I feel, I feel like every, every, everything it's doing is, is to, to try and escape. Oh. I think it's, 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 it's running away from the, from the Norwegians that who are trying the, to shoot it beginning. and blow it up. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the yeah. So I, by that logic, then that's a really bleak, nihilistic read on the film because it suggests then that McGreedy has basically torn the camp apart. For something that poses no real threat to the rest of mankind if it wants to build a spaceship and just get away there's no real threat there it just wants to leave it wants to get away from earth and to voyage into the beyond well it'll it'll always be a threat because it can't trust the humans and the humans can't trust it and the humans can't trust it so yeah because there, there, there's no sort of kind of accommodation they can come to where they where they would kind of understand each other yeah like they're 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 destined to 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 always be at odds and yeah the antagonist because this is one of the other themes that i find interesting fascinating about the film is this idea of the breakdown of communication and the breakdown of society and the paranoia and the anxiety that sort of runs through the film like there's a there's a really great line early in the film where like they're talking about like trying to figure out what happened to the norwegian base and i think one of the guys is on the radio and he's saying, Look, nobody, nobody, get a hold of somebody, get a hold of anybody. We've got to report this mess. Look, I haven't been able to read in two weeks. I doubt if anybody's talked to anybody on this entire continent and you want me to reach somebody. So he's talking about the storm that's sweeping through and making it difficult to talk to yeah. other people. But he's also talking about like the difficulty in actually communicating with human beings from person to person. Which, when you factor that into, like, imagine trying to talk to something with a completely alien frame of reference. Like, when the Norwegians come shooting the dogs, Knowles, half-jokingly, but to be honest, he's pointing out that they've got no idea how disconnected they are from the outside world. He's, Maybe we had war with Norway. 
there's this thing running through it where uh, where McCready when he's recording. It's interesting that Nolz doesn't have his. Uh, roller blades on r- roller skates on for the entire movie <laughs> at some point they were like okay enough of that yeah we, we, we've <laughs> it, got it it's an 80s it, piece yeah, yeah, yeah. we established it, it would be weird if he was <laughs> skating through the ice outside yeah. with a flamethrower um, would that push you backwards would the flamethrower generate enough inertia to I suppose it would have to hit something um, otherwise you just roller skate into the flames another special um, <laughs> episode of, of the, the 250 two, where the we mi- try out flamethrowers yeah, this is a video podcast. We're yeah. working on the insurance right now. But I mean, even the stuff where MacReady is sitting there drinking um, and recording to himself to leave a record for somebody else to find. This, by the way, the, 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 um, well, yeah, MacReady. Just, just Arini and Brown, which which is there's a lot of just J and B in this movie. There's a lot of it in American Psycho. So obviously, their marketing department knows what they like. Absolutely. Like and and um. I quite like Justerini and Brown. A lot of people would kind of like turn. Well, some people uh, kind What's of like whiskey it? snobs. Oh, okay. I I guess Is cause, it because it's mass market. Well, no, it's a uh, it's a blend. So like a, a a lot of people like they 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 want a particular um a particular vintage and kind of like a single malt and oh, which, 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 which blend like the creature itself, eh? Ah. Ah. Sorry, continue. Yeah. No. No. It's, it's it, but I I just. I, I seem to kind of like blend. What has this got to do with anything? Nothing. I like Jemison too. <laughs> um, if, if Andrew is J- fishing for sponsors J- at the yeah, moment. Jemison yeah. have lost the the the, the, the uh, Dublin the Film Dublin Festival. Film Festival. To if, Audi. They, if they would yeah. like to step in and sponsor the podcast yeah. and ship us a crate of alcohol, as the podcast host who doesn't drink, I would be perfectly fine with that. <laughs> um, but there is this sense of like the breakdown of order and the breakdown of trust. Like as you pointed out, the fact that like they're at each other's throats even when even before you know they they're sure who the thing is. For example, there's the the point where McReady is recording into the into the microphone and he's talking about you know nobody nobody trusts anybody now. I don't know who to trust. I know what you mean, Blair. Trust a tough thing to come by these days. And there's a sense of that sort of creeping, like, paranoia sort of running through it. And, like, I wonder, like... Because I mentioned I mentioned Lovecraft early on when I talked about the design of the creature and its tentacles. Because um, one of the things that, when you think of tentacles, you think of, of Lovecraft's sort of mythos, which was it... How do you pronounce it? Chithulu? I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Chithulu? Chithulu. But... Think. But these sort of like monsters with tentacles that are unrecognizable to human beings. One of the things that's interesting about Lovecraft is that his Cthulhu. Well, Cthulhu. maybe you, you know who we're yeah. talking about though. Like, but the idea that his work has been very rarely adapted into film, despite being like a cornerstone of American like li- horror literature. Yeah, like it's it's a sense of. It's in the public domain now as well, which makes it it's sort of cheaper. There was an ad- attempt a few years ago I've to seen, adapt. Uh, yeah, I've, 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 I, I saw I saw one um, reanimator uh, uh, hip hop Lovecraft um, <laughs> <laughs> movie. Um, it, it was one where it's kind of a seaside village of some sort, and there's this kind of beast with like this name that some kind of sea creature. Or, I can't. I can't think of what it was. No. No. Anyway, never mind. But there is. Uh, there's also the Call of the Sea, I think, as well. Right. But um, yeah, he was very fond of these sort of primitive, these sort of primitive sea creatures. But like his work has been very rarely adapted for screen, um, which is very strange given like how influential he is. 
Right. And how sort of how big a shadowy cast and how sort of now the racism is probably a huge part of that to be yeah, entirely because, fair. Because racism like will kill any like, <laughs> any project, project as we know, having watched tra- all the Transformers films. Yeah. But there is this sense that his work is is on. I don't, a... I don't think racism would be too much of a problem. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, sadly, um, yeah, like the, the L'Oreal model, um, what's her name? Uh, Bergdorf? Oh yes, yeah, that, that in, scandal got in, that happened recently. Got, yeah. got in trouble recently for 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 saying all uh, white people are are. Well, sorry, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, they. There is a level of racism. To exactly. All white people, yeah, yeah, and and uh, basically arguing that white privilege exists would seem to be the what. Like, yeah. Would be well, like, the, like if you're talking about. H.P. Lovecraft, being racist, it's like yeah, so it was rolled out. And um, <laughs> have you have you read like have you read Lovecraft stuff? Like, there's a bit more. There's a little bit. Oh more, yeah, 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 yeah. But but <laughs> just a no, tiny I, bit. Yeah. No, absolutely. But it, uh, like like it's it's it, it kind of it it infects. It's a symptom. Yeah. Of where you are, kind of like in, now yeah. in 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 society, and yeah. it's not just race. It's also class and gender yeah. and. Yeah, put it put, and 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 it, it it's also it's also a symptom of uh, era. No, I don't think that I think that's fair to a certain extent, but it's more what I was getting. At I'm is, not saying that that excuses. No, I'm not saying at all. that you have to kind of recognize it. Yeah, and I do think that even for the context of his time, like in the context of the 30s, he was still quite bad. Um, yeah, and I think that like, but one of the interesting things is that the thing for me, feels almost like a very pure Lovecraft adaptation of a story that he never told. And there are certainly elements of, say, At the Mountains of Madness, where there's a bunch of people who discover um, something hidden in the Antarctic that drives a couple of them mad. Like, I think Blair is driven mad by the revelation of it, for example. Right. Like, he, he goes well, over the I, edge. I think the, the thing with Blair is, it, it seems to be, what it hinted at with me is the kind of thin line between, like, um, uh, genius and uh, insanity yeah between you know right level paranoid and just a little bit too paranoid isn't it? yeah I, 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 yeah I, I, well no I, I, I feel I feel like like greatness and madness kind of like, intertwined yeah but because he's the character who grasps what the creature is and what it's capable of first of yeah. all like I mean because it's only when when Fuchs reads his um, reads his journal yeah, and sort of approaches McReady outside that the others seem to grasp what's at stake. And they're saying we kind of need him because he's like the only one who 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 would really grasp it. And I I think I think that he is uh, assimilated later. Yeah. In the yeah. well, presumably when he was out there, something got him. Yeah. Uh, like when he was isolated and alone. But I mean, I I do think that there's an element of that to the film where it, it hits on something like there's an existential quality to the to the horror in it. Where it's beyond this is a really disgusting prop and this is a really disgusting monster with tentacles, more to like human existence is viscerally disgusting. And it's what you talked about earlier with body horror. I think it's also about, I think it is also about this issue of like, could you be a thing and not realize it? And sort of like this idea that people are inherently, people don't understand one another. And so if they can't understand one another, what odds would we face when we were confronted with something? that was beyond our comprehension. Because one of the big differences between The Thing and The Thing from Another World, the 1951 adaptation of the same short story, is that in The Thing from Another World, the people working together, like, galvanize very quickly in pursuit of a common goal. In The Thing, 
almost as soon as the creature materializes, the, the movie devotes as much attention and almost as much horror to the human characters falling apart yeah. as it does to the spread of the infection. Well, uh, pretty much immediately, the, the, um, you get a sense of the tension within the group. Because they, they, fir first thing that, that happens is, well, one of the first thing that happens is the Norwegian um, gets shot in the head and they're talking very disparagingly about their, their, their kind of boss. Yeah. It's like, oh, you finally got to use your kind of like... Revolver and so yeah. on. Well, there's a sense that, yeah, that, that basically um, Palmer's been kept at a distance from the rest of them. Like, there's a point that, like, does... Palmer, obviously, there's there's motivation, there's reason there to assume that he smashed the blood. There's yeah. reason to, to make the guess that he did. And it's never quite explained how the blood was destroyed if he didn't do it. And uh, and then if the, the, the other doctor, Dr. Copper, didn't do it, because they're the only ones who, in theory, had access to the key. But, like, one of the things is there's a sense that this crisis has provided an opportunity for people to act out against him. Because, like, there's a point where McReady says, look, I'm going to test yours last. And he's the last one tied to the chair. And even when he's tied to the chair and it's revealed that he's not a thing, his response is not relief or gratitude. It's like, no, I, you guys have tied me up here. I know that this is nothing to do with me actually being a thing. There's a sense that you guys are venting the frustration and the resentment that you had towards me. And I mean, there's even the bit early on where when they're flying out to the Norwegian base, where I think, where basically the other pilot, I can't remember his name, maybe, maybe it's, uh, but the other pilot basically uh, offers to fly out and they say no. Oh, and yeah. yeah, and it, it's just a very quick thing, but you get a sense that there are already sort of simmering tensions and simmering resentments sort of within within this group before the alien threat shows up. As a result, like without and he he turns out to to be an alien as well. Yeah, and it, it, when 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 they're when they're when they're sitting down doing the test, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is by the way the test scene is fantastic. The test scene is absolutely fantastic. There's some really great performance from the actors who are tied there as well. Oh, that like... was like the the hilarious uh, high point of the movie. This <laughs> was really funny when there's the two actors tied down under. Yeah, tied down. So it's like Gary, I think, and Childs who are tied down um, next. By, by the way, I love um, I love Keith David. He's, as oh yeah, just as yeah. Charles, but he's got one of those great voices. He's, yeah. he's a fantastic. And he's, like like a, a lot a lot of people our age will will remember him from something about Mary or Requiem for a Dream. Perhaps he made quite an impression in that. Um, no, I, 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 I'm I'm not I'm not a big Aronofsky uh, uh, sort of fan. Fan, no. Well, I mean, he is, but he's he's one of those guys who pops up everywhere, and he's done a lot of really great stuff. And he has a great voice. He really. I does. think there's something kind of not very distinctive, but kind of um, very um, ever uh, every man and relatable about Kurt Russell's voice. I think there's something very kind of um, it it works really well as 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 a kind of a leading man or a kind of an action hero. Sort of quality to because yeah. we were talking about this because you were not impressed by his beard. No, he no. spent a year growing this beard, did Mister Russell, and growing his hair yeah. out of the role. It was and kind of thin on the lip and thin in the uh, in the upper cheek yeah, sort of sideburn it, area. It's kind of it's 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 sort of nasty of me as as a person 
who is like <laughs> who has the luxury of growing a beard. Like two things that that um, that I'm certainly good at is like growing a beard and I guess eating spicy food. <laughs> um, and for for me, and we're fresh kind of, out of spicy yeah, food. To yeah. quote another, to quote another con, another collaboration between um, was it between uh, uh, John Carpenter Pliskin. and yeah. <laughs> But yeah, for for to kind of make fun of people who can't eat spicy food or or, or who grow can't beard. uh, grow beards, which is something I often do, but it's unfair. I do feel like somewhere Kurt Russell is hurting as a result of this. Yeah. It? like um sitting there having just filmed gardens of the galaxy which is another movie where he has a, a long a luxuriant beard he has a great beard in guardians of the galaxy i thought oh, right. um i i i'd have to look at it again but it, it's like it's like he it, it, i think it was improved so, with age like a fine line i think so yeah but he is he's very very good in this and i think that one of the things kurt russell is a fantastic leading performer i'm kind of sad that he sort of he faded slightly in the 90s because he there was a period in the 80s where he was the go-to guy for these sort of films. What do you, what do you call a, a, a beard wig, by the way? Because we know a pubic wig is a merkin. Right? Yeah. Um, a birkin? I don't know. But um, yeah, it is a... Uh, he is a fantastic performer. And actually, this is the third of his five collaborations with Carpenter, actually. Um, and this is the one that he regards uh, most highly. Oh, yeah. Understandable. Did, uh, big, big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. And obviously the two um, yeah. the two Escape From films. But he does have this very sort of casual, charming quality that I think works very well in this. Because there's a sense that McCready is not very good at this. Like there's a sense that in, in a normal horror movie, he would take charge and he would know what to do. And he would like, he would be in charge and things would never get out of control or things would get a little tense. But they never escalate to the situation where he has to basically I think stage. He's fairly good at this, Darren. <laughs> Given the <laughs> pressures exerted on you're, him, you're 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 being you're being quite harsh on him. It, it's I I I think he does quite well. How would you do, Darren? Fair point. <laughs> I'd probably be the guy out in the shack building a giant spaceship. Okay, so I will concede that. But there is, there is a sense, and I like that about the movie, is that the team don't come together to face this impossible threat. They sort of, they fall apart under the pressure. And I think yeah. that's a very effective way of sort of creating a, a horror almost underneath the horror, like the monsters are due on Maple Street. Actually, if you had to, uh, if, <laughs> if you had to barricade your windows and doors, you no longer have that door that you haven't. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. yeah, the yeah. DIY in the house, like, unfortunately. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be such a shame to have to barricade the windows because I just got them done. Yeah. But yeah, there is, a, <laughs> but there is this sort of sense that, that runs through it. I mean, I... Something I have to mention is uh, Rob Button's creations in this. Oh are, yes, that's right. They're fantastic. And there's, there's, it's like if if H.R. Giger was 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 given the free reign to kind of to 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 really art, articulate the whole kind of like world that he wanted to <laughs> to live in. Yeah, the in, sort of mess of flesh. Yeah, because because uh, Rob like Rob Button had so much that he was you know, able to do in in, in this. I, well, let's, I mean, let's I, talk about this, because, I mean, one of the things about this is Botton worked so hard on this that he checked himself into hospital afterwards suffering from nervous exhaustion. And it shows. It's a fantastic piece of work. Like, so much. Uh, yeah. Stan Winston had to step it's in all, at the last minute. All of that exhaustion is on the screen. No, no it is. And, I mean, yeah. like, Stan Winston had to step in and help out. He, he did, interestingly enough, the first time you see the creature attack, which is the dogs in the kennel, 
Mm. I believe Stan Winston was responsible for that effect. But he said he turned down credit on it because, like, Button had done such great work everywhere else. Yeah. That he didn't feel like it was appropriate for him to, like, even take a sub-credit on it. Because it really is. I mean, I... I watched the 2001 slash prequel slash remake, uh, sorry, 2011, yeah. sorry, remake slash sequel slash prequel slash whatever, um, as part of this, just to sort of to get a sense mm. of the movie. And like, it's amazing how much you lose in the world of, of CGI. Like CGI has made it possible in theory to have effects that look more realistic in theory, that, that, that look more like we expect images to look, that are, are more affordable, that are flexible, that you can do more things to than you can with a practical model. But at the same time, a practical model has weight and substance and mass. It's more a kind of it's it, like I'm I'm always disgusted more by kind of stop motion and model work work than, um, than, than CGI with, horror. With CGI, yeah. And it is, and I mean, there are points when like, and one of the things kind of crawly about it. There, is, well, something and, like it actually, you could hold it or touch it. If not that you would want to, because there's a point. There's a wonderful point where when they're dissecting. Um, they're dissecting the creature where Wilfred Brimley as Dr. Blair cracks off a leg like he's cracking a lobster. Yeah, there's and and there there's a, a kind of like we talked about meat, but yeah, that kind of like food imagery. It 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 did remind me a lot. Like there were parts of it where where it's it, where where you're thinking about like a a barbecue or or yeah. about a lobster or um, it's even cooked for you in the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. There there is there is. But it does have a lot of mass and a lot of weight and a lot of substance and a way that like, even though you know for a fact that this is not what a body would look like being stretched or bent, it's close enough that it's uncomfortable. And it's not like CGI where you can say it's pixels and where you have that sort of instinctive quality in your reptile brain where you know what you're seeing is not real in the same way that you know that animation is not real. Yeah. This is like you know on a visceral... Maybe it's, maybe it's a psychological thing where you know because of practical effects you know that it's real, but it looks real. You can tell from the way like the skin tears as the head stretches, for example. Yeah. You can tell from the way that like the... the the vomit flows through the air as the tentacles whip or as the, the bones sort of bend and melt. The sound design, by the way, to be clear, the sound design in this is amazing where you can hear the cracking from inside the creature. Like there's a point where the head gets on the floor and I think you freaked out at this and I freaked out a little bit when I saw it the first time as well, but where the legs, the spider legs sort of spindle from it and the visuals are astounding. Like Bottom's work yeah. is just amazing, want, but want... it's the sound, the cracking and the bending. I wonder how much Button was inspired by Francis Bacon, because it it I I know I know that um, Francis Bacon is, is, has inspired a lot of um, body horror. Yeah, yeah, and and stuff like kind of Hellraiser and that sort of thing as well. But it it like when 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 you see the two kind of heads, kind of one coming out of the other, and you see the teeth. Kind of, of like bared and and kind of stretched. It it, Where it reminds it's like me of one some of the kind of face um, and stuff like that. Uh, triptych. Um, sorry, how do you say that? Triptychs. Um, of yeah, I'm 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 interested to know. I uh, Darren see, is going to the fact machine. I can't seem to actually find it, but you can see like there are some very very it's effective the, like. There's the self-portrait of Bacon from 1973 versus that the image that we're talking about, which is the body they find in the the Norwegian site. Yeah. Uh, which is the the two faces with, with the, the tongue, tongue coming. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. the teeth sort of intertwined, and it is it has that sort of haunted, sort of really creepy and unsettling quality to it. Yeah. It really is. It's really uncanny. Must have been some inspiration. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are arguments here um, that are saying that he was influenced by it. I can't seem to find any first-hand source. No, no. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if basically Bolton had sort of looked at Bacon and said, well, look, that's an interesting thing to do with the creature. That's an interesting mm. smell. I mean, the, the script, interesting, was written by Burt Lancaster's son, actually. There's a fun piece of trivia for you. Because yeah. we were talking about that when we saw the name in the credits. And the, the dog, actually. The dog does some really good dog acting. Oh, that's fantastic. Side. And that was actually um, Burt Lancaster's dog. <laughs> no, it was not Burt Lancaster's dog. Um, but it really is. It's it's fantastic. And I mean, the, the score from Ennio Morricone as well is wonderful. Because you sort of imagine Morricone, obviously, hugely it's influential. Kind of synthy, bassy. It is. Yeah. It's, it's very Carpenter-esque. It reminds yeah. me a lot of Carpenter's work on, say, Escape from New York. There's, there's a, a bass and the kind of organs. Yeah on it and and yeah there is a kind of a synthy quality to it as well and yeah because you generally when you think of morricone you think of the big orchestral scores for like his, his westerns and stuff yeah. like that and even the untouchables stuff like that you don't tend to think of his electronic scores which is a shame because in the 80s he was doing this sort of like chi may for example got to number one in the british charts in i think 1981 with a very sort of a blend of symphony and electron and electronics and yeah. i think you can sort of see its influence here it's got these very kind of like like it's well, it, it's it's interesting the kind of range of um, Ennio Morricone, the the different things that Ennio Morricone can do in yeah. a film score versus kind of well Hans a, Zimmer, for example, yeah, where, where Hans Zimmer has a very distinctive sound that you recognise as inherently Hans Zimmer. Yeah, yeah, or um, Danny Elfman. Yeah, kind of the, where, because yeah. Danny Elfman well, has that well, sort of stereotype. I mean, he can with, stretch himself. And yeah. he, he does occasionally work outside his comfort zone. Uh, yeah, I suppose with maybe. More, but when you think of his yeah. iconic scores, they the, all sound the stuff quite with alike. Tim Burton. Yes, that's yeah, it, the yeah. whimsical sort of whimsical yeah. horror stuff, and they do tend to sound quite like. Whereas when you think of Marconi's big scores, you compare they all, like the mission to to his um, western scores. Of, uh, yeah, western yeah. scores to this. There's yeah. just a huge range, and it, it's very effective. And like it's 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 very 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 good, and I think that it, it adds an incredible amount to the quality of the it's film. Kind of low, um, kind of almost. It sounds like it's it's a keyboard that's that's kind of uh, pretending to be a, a a bass string, where it's kind of like. Yeah, the, the kind of yeah. mounting sort of like I mean, even when we when we watch the movie, um, watching the end credits go just over that that sort of dull, that sort of like droning, sort of like uh, ominous kind of like pulsing almost. Yeah, would you describe? But it, it has, and it maybe that's what it is. Maybe 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 it plays into that idea of body horror that also reflected in the. Uh, in the creature and that maybe it's a heartbeat maybe it maybe that's why it works and, so well yeah i think like like the dialogue it it, it wasn't very intrusive i don't think like in, in no no in, in, the, in the in the sense that like the you, you weren't struck by by you weren't the, the music yeah. really yeah you weren't you weren't appreciating it for its own sake until you got to the end where yeah. it's playing over the credits and you're like Versus actually if, if you're watching the mission and you hear gabriel's oboe you're <laughs> yeah. like oh this is this is, this is like beautiful this, yeah, yeah yeah this is sort of like it's almost like watching sort of coin where it's like the, the music and the imagery are are one yeah whereas i think that yeah i think it works very very well in the context of this film and i think it's 
while we're talking about the sort of technical craft involving the film, I mean, Marconi and, and Bobbitt and stuff like that, I mean, it's important to single out uh, Carpenter's contribution. Like, Carpenter is a great director. He's not necessarily a very flashy and showy director, but he's a very good director when it comes to just technical craft. So, for example, like, I think Kurt Russell has talked about one of the joys of working with Carpenter is that he's a director who can cram a lot of actors into a scene together. So, for example, the, the autopsy scenes with the corpse of the thing itself, where you have all the members of the outpost standing there and you have them sort of talking and exchanging dialogue and you don't do that. It's very difficult to do that without it seeming static or boring or without cutting a lot. But what Cameron does very cleverly is he has Wilfred Brimley as Dr. Blair just walk around and has the camera follow him so you get a chance to take in all the individual reactions and get a sense of how these people are reacting in a way that's very natural and very sort of undistracting, but also makes a point to give a sense of space and a sense of place. There are also a number of shots where you get characters wandering around through the facility as well, which gives a sense of place and scale, which is very good from a, a technical point of view as a horror film. I think like James Wan later on does, when he does horror movies, what he does is he does long take sort of trips through the space to give an audience a sense of place and so carpenter does something that's not quite exactly the same but something sort of very similar with Knowles and, and the roller skates and i mean even stuff like you can see sort of carpenter's affection for howard hawks for classic hollywood filmmaking in the way that he tends to end scenes or sort of beats on on fade outs which sort of like they're very old school hollywood technique it's it's a very sort of like uh it isn't like a smack bang cut that's designed to scare you it's a slow fade out that leaves you unsettled that creates a sense that like maybe the scene is continuing past what you're seeing or maybe not everything's been resolved but it also sort of feels like something from classic hollywood which despite all the gore and the violence and the horror on display like carpenter is a very classic filmmaker very old school filmmaker with a very sort of old school sensibility and i think that sort of shines through and i think the thing works very well because it is graphic and it is modern and it is visceral but it also it's just the work of a director who knows exactly what he's doing i guess the only thing left to do then is to figure out what we're going to do next halloween that's really the big uh... <laughs> that is true <laughs> Well, what the hell is possibly that? Hopefully, there'll be there'll be something on the um, two fifty between now and then. I know uh, this might date it, but it hasn't yet got onto the gone to the fifty, which is strange because it was it ranked very very highly. It was very very popular, um, but it seems to have been held off by the, the metrics by the so waiting of the voters. Ish and the thing <laughs> <laughs> released back to back um, a horror fest October. Yeah, with, with like it in. Indistinct kind of um, <laughs> blurring uh, between the two. nouns. <laughs> it's like noun. Is, is, is going <laughs> it's to be the, the, horror, the next movie. horror movie. But uh, yeah, no. And to be honest, I actually quite like um, quite like it. I think it is a very good horror movie. Hmm. Um, you know, but the thing with it is, um, and so on and so forth. Who's on first? Who's on second? They live. Right. <laughs> I have 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 a horror movie called Them. But I mean, with that in mind, then, is there anything else that sort of jumps out at you about the thing? No, I, I, I think, I think, like we've spoken about a lot of the, the, the aspects of the, the thing <laughs> that meant some, so, um, something to us about the movie. So I, I suppose, um, like a, a lot of our listeners at this point are asleep. So <laughs> hey, well, this is this is your ideal length for a podcast. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, like... it's 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 time to 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 kind of go so that we don't. Um, outstay our welcome a little yeah, bit yeah yeah we don't want somebody to wake up at like two in the morning and realize that the, the podcast, podcast is still, still going yeah. yeah well Darren what do we do now why don't we just wait here for the one see what happens